I'm Michelle Barry, and you don't know Jack. I'm a freelance writer and media consultant living in Northern Arizona. You might be wondering, who is Jack and why should you know him? Well, that's the reason this podcast exists. If you haven't listened to our previous episode that delves into several of Jack's many accomplishments, I encourage you to stop and go back and give it a listen. Jack is semi-retired from public health and lives in the small mining town of Jerome, Arizona with his wife, Jamie. And today, we're going to talk about his origin story. Now, I have a question for you. How are leaders made? Some leaders have lofty ambitions from as early as grade school. Some are groomed practically from birth by wealthy parents and families, leveraging access to fancy schools, influential business networks, and other societal avenues that help them get ahead and get to the top. Other leaders emerge from obscurity to fill a need where no one else will. They get talked into it. It's less about ambition and more about stepping up to fill a need and pitching in to help. Some scientists who study the qualities of successful leaders say that personality types and emotional intelligence play a role. Attributes such as being an extrovert and the ability to be bold, take risks, are behavioral patterns that we see across all types of leaders, whether in business, education, or politics. Leaders also need to be able to analyze situations and figure out desired outcomes and courses of action to get there. While intelligence is often associated with successful leaders, that doesn't necessarily translate to academic intelligence, but instead social intelligence. Strong leaders understand social situations and processes and can build consensus among followers to take action. And also, Truly great leaders possess empathy. They must be able to put themselves in others' shoes to understand how to motivate and unite followers. Jack Dillenberg was born on November 22nd, on Thanksgiving Day in Harlem, New York, to Rita and Cart Dillenberg. They were German immigrants who dreamt of starting a new life in America. And on Thanksgiving Day, for the first time since the United States had joined its allies to fight in World War II, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade had returned to New York City. The war was over, and Americans finally had something to look forward to. So on November 21st, the day before my mom was pregnant with me, she was home, my dad went, he traditionally placed cards with his old German buddies at a scat, which is the most popular card game in Germany, apparently. Mm -hmm. And so he was out doing that. And all of a sudden she started to whatever a woman does before the babies pop out. And so she called him, told him, called the cab, went to, uh, going to meet at the hospital in Harlem. I was born in Harlem. And going over the bridge, I think it was the Brooklyn Bridge. I'm not sure it was a drawbridge and the drawbridge went up. 
and the taxi driver is going nuts because my mother's back there in labor, ready to give birth in the taxi cab. And he said, calm down, calm, wait, 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 wait. Got into the Sydenham Hospital. Less than 30 minutes later, I was born. <laughs> my dad arrived as he walks into the hospital. The doctor who delivered me was leaving. And he looked at him and said, what's going on? He says, well, you have a son. And that was November 22nd, 1945, Thanksgiving. So every four years, my birthday is on Thanksgiving. And I joke, my mother brought her own turkey to the mm-hmm. celebration. Jack just missed being part of the baby boomer generation by one year. Technically, he is part of the silent generation of Americans born between 1928 and 1945. Although he shares a lot of affinity with boomers, particularly the counterculture movement of the 1960s. The silent generation to which Jack belongs is much smaller than the boomer generation. This was due to the low birth rate during the Great Depression in World War II. Generally, the silent generation is characterized as being thrifty, respectful, unassuming, and loyal. A common thread between children of this generation is that they were primarily raised by their mothers. For various reasons, their fathers were mostly absent from their daily lives, especially when they were younger. Jack worshipped his older brother, Hal. He was eight years older, and in Jack's view, Hal was the coolest cat on the block. But Hal had some problems, even at an early age. The lack of a male figure in his life led him to make some bad choices, and he soon earned a reputation around Forest Hills as a troublemaker. Jack believes his brother was acting out to get his father's attention. He had a rough go. And he was eight years older. He was older. eight years older, and he wound up getting addicted to drugs. And My dad didn't know what it was like to be a dad in America. He mm-hmm. never took my brother to a ball game in New York City. Never took him to a ball game, never had a catch with him. Same with me, never took him to a ball game, never threw a baseball with me or anything like that. He, he was a stamp collector. He loved opera and stamps. So I had to collect stamps. The only way I could spend any time with my dad was if I collected stamps. And he showed me this, that, or the other thing, or I'd listen to the Metropolitan Opera on Saturdays. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, his mother Rita was a source of unconditional love and support. She was a great cook. She took in laundry and sewing to help pay the bills. And when Jack was older, his mother volunteered at a local hospital. Jack remembers his mother being a kind, gracious person, not just to her children, but to everyone. Growing up in Queens in the 1950s was an amazing time for Jack. The Dillenbergs lived in a modern, but modest, brick house on Juno Street. Jack's parents had scraped and saved to buy a small, two-story attached home, the typical style of the day. When Jack was old enough, he attended the local public school, PS 144. Jack loved school. While he got good grades, he never considered himself an academic, 
and he never felt any pressure from his parents to be one. Most of all, Jack loved the social aspects of school. He made friends easily. As a child, his life revolved around his social circle. It was how he learned about the world outside of his home. Jack's mother was Protestant, and his father was Jewish. Since his mother didn't convert to Judaism, Jack and his brother were not considered Jewish. But they did study the Jewish faith. They attended the Free Synagogue of Flushing, the oldest liberal reform synagogue in Queens. Very reformed synagogue. And I joke and say it was so reformed, it was closed for the Jewish holidays. A rabbi, who I, I used to babysit his kids, and he was a very famous reform rabbi, one of the most famous, in the United, I'm drawing a blank on his name now. But I would go there on Friday night sometime just to have a little bit of the service or the Shabbat mm -hmm. and learn about it. And so the boys, uh, we became friends for years and years. And, uh, and that was interesting. So that's where I learned my Judaism, so mm -hmm. to speak. One of the core beliefs of Judaism is that all human beings are created equally. Betzelem Elohim, which means in the image of God, and that human beings are God's partners in improving the world. It is every living person's responsibility to work with people of all faiths to make it a better place for everyone. In the teachings of the Torah, Jack learned that all human beings' lives are interconnected, and the actions of one person have a ripple effect. When Jack started middle school, he wanted to join the Boy Scouts of America. Some of his friends had joined, and they talked at length about a troop camping trip. Jack had never been camping. His parents weren't exactly outdoorsy. He figured the Boy Scouts would be his best shot at giving camping a go. Like many of the other Jewish kids in the neighborhood, Jack planned to join the troop at his synagogue. But his friend, Howard Marks, convinced him to join his troop, which met at the Catholic Church in town, Our Lady Queen of Martyrs. He was friendly with all of those boys, so he decided to take Howard up on his offer. It didn't take long for Jack to figure out that he was the only non-Christian boy in the troop. This marks the first of many times in Jack's life when he felt in limbo between two different worlds. Since he was only half Jewish on his father's side, he was never entirely accepted as a Jew, even though he went to Hebrew school and had a bar mitzvah. He was a fish out of water, any way you slice it. Jack further developed his sense of humor to gain acceptance from these different circles and protect himself from any hostility. His comic timing, self-effacing one-liners and quick wit helped him in many awkward situations over the years. In this case, Jack's humor won over the other boys in his troop and they encouraged him to run for troop leader. He won in a landslide. This is Jack's first memory of opting in to be a leader in some way. After some convincing, that is. Jack soon learned that winning the position of troop leader led to bigger things than a camping trip with his friends. Jack traveled to Colorado to attend the National Boy Scout Jamboree. It was the first time in his life that he had ever left Queens. 
President Dwight Eisenhower gave the keynote speech, and the boys were thrilled. A photo memorializes Jack at the Jamboree. He is displaying some of his newly acquired outdoor survival skills. In the photo, he has a thick head of dark hair. He looks up from his work, squinting into the Colorado sun while using a flint to make a fire. In the background of the black and white photo stands a tent that Jack assembled himself. It is immaculate. previous episode, we heard about Dr. Jack's special talent of coming into the orbit of influential people. Over the course of his life, Jack has rubbed elbows with pro athletes, rock stars, great humanitarians, politicians, even a president or two. Some of Jack's contemporaries in Forest Hills also grew up to become great successes. One of them was Bob Simon, Emmy and Peabody award-winning correspondent for 60 Minutes. He was Jack's babysitter for years. The two remained friends and stayed in touch until Bob passed away suddenly in an accident in 2015. Now, Bob is no relation to singer-songwriter Paul Simon, but he also grew up in Forest Hills. Paul was a few years older than Jack. His kid brother, Eddie, was in Jack's grade at school. It wasn't unusual at the time to see Paul Simon performing with his pal, Artie Garfunkel. They were part of a duop quartet that would sing outside on the street corners and play small gigs around town. Oh, and Jack's best friend, Howard Marks, the one who encouraged him to join the Boy Scouts and run for troop leader? Well, he became Howard Marks, co-founder and co-chairman of Oak Tree Capital Management, one of the largest investors in distressed securities worldwide. Union jobs were hard to come by in Forest Hills back then. The Dillenbergs rarely took vacations. Cart worked almost 52 weeks a year and brought home about $2,000 a year. Jack recalls only one time that the family went on vacation together. Unfortunately, their destination was Cuba, just as Fidel Castro took over the country. Jack was in eighth grade at the time. And my brother couldn't go. He was in the brig for some drug shit. And so it was just the three of us. And we flew down to Havana and stayed in a beautiful apartment there with a caretaker that we stayed beautiful. It was really lovely. More coffee shops everywhere, these little coffee stands. And so we're going, we flew down on a four-engine propeller plane across the street from where the apartment building is, the Havana Hilton, the big uh, hotel. So we were there, and then we went to the beach for a few days. It was Veradero Beach, Veradero, one of the most beautiful beaches in the Caribbean. And we were there and had a lovely, we were there for the day, and it was just great. And all of a sudden my dad gets a call from the caretaker. We gotta come back right away. We got some issues, you know, we've had these uh, Fidel Castro and his men, you know, doing things and it's a revolution. And now they're attacking Havana. I wanna get you home in a safe place. So, grabs mom, me, in the car, start driving back to Havana. 
And as we're going down the, the highway, we pass by Batista's house. Batista was the prime minister. He was the ruler of Cuba that Castro overturned. And as we drove by, his house was in flames. <sighs> so we said, something is going on. <laughs> we, so we get back, we drive into Havana, parking the place, and we're walking a block to get to the house. And there were guys hanging from trees that were murdered by Batista's military folks and stuff. So we got into the place and we said, you stay here, I'll get food, whatever it is, but we're gonna stay here and be safe. And within four days, we couldn't leave. We, we, we tried to leave the next day, whatever, on a flight, couldn't, four days, we were stranded, no travel. And then well, Castro had one of his guys sort of on every corner. And he moved into the Hilton and made that his headquarters. So that's where the center was, and we were right there, and so it was very well protected by his people. On the third day or so, fourth day, my mom and I are out walking. So I walked by and I saw the airline office, and I said, hi, we're here. You got any chance you got three seats back to the States, to New York? He said, you know, we do, tomorrow. You guys want to go? So I ran outside, mom, get in here quick, boom. We got seats for tomorrow. The next day, we left, and it was, uh, again, four-engine prop plane. And as soon as we took off, the pilot said, okay, cocktails for everybody. You know, they were just glad to get out of there with people because they knew what was happening. By the time Jack entered high school, his family living situation had grown to include his grandmother, who had come to live with them. He also became closer with his mother's sister, his Aunt Vera. She was a single, working woman, a very modern woman by the standards of the day. Jack recalls that his father didn't enjoy her, but Jack liked spending time with her just fine. Upon graduation, his Aunt Vera gave him $500 with the condition that he used the money to travel abroad. She firmly believed that every young person should travel the world and see how others live. She felt that it gave you perspective and an appreciation for what you have. Then one day, Jack saw an advertisement in the newspaper that caught his attention. It was an ad for the Peace Corps, a new volunteer organization founded by President John F. Kennedy in 1961. President Kennedy was one of Jack's heroes. The ad was simple enough. It was a photo of a glass of water. The ad read, is the glass half empty or half full? If you think it's half empty, maybe the Peace Corps is not for you. If you think it's half full, you've got the first thing we look for in Peace Corps people, optimism. This ad did not make Jack join the Peace Corps, but it did get him thinking more seriously about his future. As far as Jack's purpose in life, he still wasn't sure. He didn't have it all figured out, but he knew that he didn't want to end up like his brother Hal, discharged from the military and just hanging around the streets of Queens getting into trouble. He knew that whatever path he chose, he wanted to be useful. He wanted to be of service. And he strongly believed that the glass was half full. Jack enrolled as a freshman at American University in Washington, D.C. 
He was working towards a major in law with a minor in political science. On Jack's 18th birthday, November 22, 1963, he was sitting in a government class at American University discussing the shortcomings of the current vice president, Lyndon B. Johnson, when a student ran in shouting that President Kennedy had been assassinated. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Jack was absolutely crushed by the news. To many young people, President Kennedy represented a wave of hope for the future. His death was such a blow to Jack and his contemporaries who believed in public service. The incident served as a catalyst for Jack. He decided to transfer to Tulane University in New Orleans, Louisiana, and change his major to something in healthcare. So in 1964, Jack, a white, half-Jewish teenager from Queens, New York, moved to the Deep South to attend Tulane. It was an eye-opening experience for him. Jack saw segregation up close and personal in Louisiana, witnessing separate bathrooms, water fountains, and living arrangements based on skin color. He was appalled. Not long after enrolling at Tulane, Jack joined the civil rights movement. He joined friends from school and traveled to Selma, Alabama for the freedom marches. On that trip, Jack once again felt like a fish out of water. He and his friends were confronted and threatened by local men who made it clear that they didn't want these Jewish college boys coming into their town to stand up for, quote, our Negroes, unquote. Jack was assaulted by one of the men. When he returned to Tulane, Jack ran for student body president and was elected. Yet again, it was a situation in which he was encouraged to run by his classmates and he obliged. He graduated from Tulane in 1967 with a psychology degree. Like many young men graduating from college that year, the Vietnam War loomed large over Jack's future. Most men his age were eligible for the draft. Additionally, there were many ways for men to avoid the draft, such as obtaining deferments for education or medical reasons or being classified as a conscientious objector. So he decided after graduation that he would apply to dental school. There were two primary motivators for this decision. First and foremost, Jack was number seven in the lottery draft. If he enrolled in dental school, he could likely receive an academic deferment. And secondly, dental school was a way for Jack to have a career in healthcare. Jack chose dental school instead of medical school because he felt that there was less risk. He didn't want to deal with the responsibility of life and death. The way he saw it, if he made a mistake, killing a tooth is a lot different than killing a person. Jack applied to a few dental schools, but he had his top choice, and that was New York University. 
To his delight, he was accepted and would start classes in the fall. But before that, Jack decided to finally take his Aunt Vera's advice. He still had the money that his aunt had given him for his high school graduation. He asked his parents if they'd be willing to match the amount for his graduation gift from Tulane, and they agreed. With $1,000 and no real plan, Jack bought a plane ticket to Amsterdam. It was his first time in another country since his ill-fated trip to Cuba, and he'd never seen anything like it. He met up with some college friends and traveled across Europe. This is where things started coming into focus for Jack. When Jack returned from his summer adventure, he came back to New York with a changed perspective on the world. He found himself wanting to do more, to somehow make an impact. But mostly, he wanted to help people improve their quality of life. As he prepared to enter dental school, that goal was his inspiration. But first, he would have to navigate the many requirements of dental school at New York University, a very conservative institution. Buckle up, because this is where Jack and his NYU classmates become anti-war activists. You Don't Know Jack, the podcast is a mesmerized consulting production. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, we'd love it if you would share a review or tell a friend about us. Please visit our website, youdon'tknowjackthepodcast.com, for more information about Dr. Jack, behind-the-scenes exclusive photos, and more. Thanks for listening. I'm Michelle Berry. Michelle Berry.